Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to the Clinton Body Count After Hours show, The Boys on the Tracks. We're going to skip the jokes again tonight because this is a very serious case. So, Ryan, just jump in and tell them what they need to If you guys would, we would greatly appreciate it if you would like, subscribe, comment, rate, share, whatever you can do with your particular podcast platform, and help us spread, help us grow, help us learn what people like, what people don't like. And to that end, if you want to let us know, you can do so at crypticpodcast.gmail.com. You can find us on TikTok and YouTube, as I always say, Podcast with an underscore for TikTok, without for YouTube. And you can find what we're selling at crypticpodcaststore.com. Well, that wraps up the business. Do you want to start us off with what we're talking about tonight? So to set the scene, an informant is found stabbed more than 100 times. A half dozen other young men die or disappear. Police barely scratch any of the cases. And they may all trace back to the boys on the tracks. Tonight we are discussing this article by Mara Leverett. Big Hole, the second headlight picked up the forms. The three men in the lead engine shot from their seats, straining forward. The engineer yelled, oh my god. Instantly, the men threw the train into emergency. The big hole on the brake, a maneuver that risked derailing. The engineer hit the horn. He never let up, nor did he take his eyes off the motionless figures. From the moment he saw them until the body of the second boy slipped placidly under his screaming machine. Later, the engineer would describe for the police the boy's apparent calm. As the train bore down on them, he said they looked as relaxed as boys sunbathing on the beach. At 5.45 a.m. on August 23, 1987, a group of men halted a mile-long northbound train near Alexander, just past the Showbroad crossing. The conductor radioed the dispatcher to report the location on the pulaski Saline County line. Afterwards, the crewmen disembarked from the engine, using flashlights to search the area behind the train where something terrible awaited them. The site proved challenging to access, with a trestle surrounded by woods on both sides. Deputy Kathy Carty and Reserve Deputy Larry Davis, who would later become sheriff, were the first to arrive within minutes. Deputy Chuck Talent and Ray Richmond from the Criminal Investigation Division joined them shortly after, with Richmond assuming command. The situation was already a nightmare, but what followed was even more terrifying. Almost immediately, due to ignorance, laziness, or deliberate actions, vital information that could have explained the deaths was lost, overlooked, misinterpreted, or removed from the scene. Thus, the destruction of the case began. Conductor Jerry H. Tomlin said the first thing they noticed was something between the rails which appeared to be partially covered with a green tarp. All three of the men reported seeing the cloth. All three reported that it was a faded green fabric, definitely not plastic. The tarp was over the lower part of their legs, Tomlin reported, probably down to about the knee and up to the upper part of the thigh. I also noticed that there was a gun approximately six inches to one foot away from the head of the boy farthest to the north. After the accident, I observed that the tarp was at this time down beside the creek. In addition to the men already mentioned, James Square Schroyer, the engineer, and Danny DeLamar, the brakeman, also informed the deputies about seeing the tarp. 
What's even more crucial, Tomlin claims that he used his flashlight to point it out to Deputy Charles Talent. It was laying at the bulkhead of the bridge where we hit the boys, Tomlin would later tell the Arkansas State Police. I was shining my light down off the bridge. I told the deputy, I believe his name was Talent. I also told two or three other people out there, but nobody seemed to get it. Engineer Schroyer later said he heard Tomlin tell Talent about the tarp. Nonetheless, that crucial piece of evidence was never recovered. It disappeared and has never been seen again. Since the night when Don Henry and Kevin Ives, the two teenage boys, were discovered run over by the train, four men with indirect connections to the case have met similarly violent ends. A fifth man, confirmed to be an informant on the case, was found brutally stabbed to death. A sixth individual, implicated in the informant's death, is reported to have committed suicide. Additionally, a seventh man, who spoke to the state police about the case and disappeared four months later, is either deceased or in hiding. The boys found on the tracks and the other deceased or missing men were all connected, some directly and some indirectly, to the drug and burglary scene in Saline County. This Saline County, with all of this going on, has about 5,000 residents. So, go ahead. The boys had a small amount of marijuana on them and they had casual contact with individuals later identified as users and sellers of harder drugs. Despite a prosecutor's hearing, a grand jury, a state police investigation, coverage on NBC's Unsolved Mysteries, and a federal grand jury inquiry into public corruption in Salem County, the mystery surrounding the boy's death remains unsolved. Curtis Henry, an electrician, resided in a house trailer approximately 300 yards from the tracks, about a mile south of where the bodies of Don Henry and Kevin Ives were discovered. On the night of August 22, 1987, Curtis' son, Don, and Don's closest friend, Kevin Ives, left the house on foot shortly after 12.30 a.m. to go hunting. They were planning to spend the night together at Don's house. However, by morning, they had not returned, and both of their cars were still in the driveway. Henry got in his own car and began searching for them. When he saw a deputy sheriff's car, he asked if the officer had seen the boys. Within an hour, deputy talent arrived at the Henry house. Cautiously, he outlined the morning's events. Was one of the boys wearing a camouflage hunting cap? Henry asked. He was, talent said. Like this? Henry asked, producing one of his own. Talent nodded. Larry Ives, an engineer for Union Pacific, was in Poplar Bluff, Missouri on the day of the deaths. He had recently been replaced on the main run to Texas, which was the same line where his son was tragically killed. Upon receiving the news, Larry hurried back to his wife Linda and their daughter Alicia in Bryant. The family had relocated from Little Rock to Saline County, hoping to escape the drug-related violence associated with the larger city. Larry Ives finds it difficult to accept the deputy's response when they were questioned about the tarp later. According to the deputies, they claimed that the crew must have experienced an optical illusion and that the tarp had never actually been there. That's convenient, isn't it? Yeah. yeah it must have been an optical illusion. I mean, come on, man. The, so when we, we're talking about intelligent people, I think a lot of people think you if you quote-unquote drive a train you just hop on and hit the gas and that's all you need to know but we're talking about people that are intelligent that have a lot of experience in this so 
I don't know. I mean, it's just one of those things. It must have been an optical illusion. Mm-hmm. Ives strongly disagrees with this explanation. Throughout his many years as an engineer, he has never encountered anything on the tracks, day or night, that later turned out to be an optical illusion, and neither have any other engineers or crew members he knows. There's no question they could have seen it if it was there, Ives says. I don't know where it went. That's the big question. Where did it go? The tragedy and rumors surrounding the deaths deeply affected Curtis Henry's family. His daughter, Gayla, was stunned by the gossip and left to live with relatives in Florida shortly after the deaths. She has never returned since then. Curtis's wife, Marvella Henry, has mostly remained silent about the case. However, Curtis himself was outspoken. He maintains an active file on the case and continues to pursue leads, despite holding little hope at this point that the mystery will ever be solved. For Larry Ives, the challenge since Kevin's death has been mostly to endure. You don't ever get over it, he says. You just kind of live through it. I sought psychiatric help there for a while, and that kind of convinced me there is a future. To live in the present, Ives says he must let the past recede, so he tries not to embroil himself in the case. Linda Ives, on the other hand, has taken the opposite approach to coping. When she began to have doubts about the way the investigation was being conducted, she converted Kevin's bedroom into an office, which she has since dubbed the War Room. She too has a list of questions she feels deserves to be answered. The parents agree on this. The investigation into their son's deaths was bungled. It was bungled at the start, and it was probably bungled deliberately. Curtis Henry has nothing but scorn for the way Saline County deputies managed the case. He was quoted as saying, it slipped through their fingers when it happened. They never even considered the possibility of murder that morning. They couldn't afford to get into a murder investigation because that would uncover too many other things. I think if they had done a professional job that morning, the murderers would be behind bars right now. Marvella Henry said simply, I think that several people were involved and that part of them were police. After the death of her son, Linda Ives directed her attention towards Dr. Fami Malik, the state's long-serving medical examiner. And I don't know if there's any contest out there for the most incompetent medical examiner in human history, but he would be at the top of the list. She believes that Malik was supposed to be the safeguard the one state official with the authority to rectify an incorrect local ruling and steer the murder investigation back on track. Instead, he further confounded the F-up. Six months after the tragedy, she told reporters, quote, Dr. Malik has made the nearly unbearable circumstance of my son's death even more intolerable. Larry Ives is asked why the investigation was fruitless, and he said, I think the main reason we didn't get a thorough investigation to start with is that there's a big drug ring operating in Saline County, and a lot of people in the know are involved, and they didn't want an investigation because they thought it would mess up their little party. It's a standard of law enforcement that any suspicious death is treated as a murder until that possibility is either established or eliminated in order to assure that critical evidence is not lost. But in this case, that fundamental rule was ignored. For Curtis Henry, 
Doubts about the investigators' competence and possibly their intentions arose early. He said, quote, When Chuck Talent came out to my house and tried to tell me it was a suicide, I said, That's crazy as hell. Don and I had set out in the yard that very day, and we talked about the deer season coming up and about building stands. Don Henry loved to hunt. There was no way he was thinking of killing himself. I told Talent that. Then, when he saw suicide wasn't going to fly, they only had one thing left, and that was drugs, and they leaned on them real heavy. The Ivies also balked at the suggestion of suicide, saying, quote, if Kevin had a problem, it was that he was too happy-go-lucky and out to have fun. He could do good work, but we had to stay on him to make passing grades. The aforementioned Deputy Kathy Carty says she was astonished when Lieutenant Ray Richmond ordered deputies to handle the scene, quote, like a traffic fatality, as a trained pedestrian accident. And she recalled, I told the coroner, we either have two of the damnedest suicides I've ever seen here, or we have a double homicide. The ambulance crew also found evidence that struck them as suspicious. Find out about a rarely used note of interest EMTs utilized in this case after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Ryan, tell us about the note of interest. After the event, in an unusual move, the two emergency medical technicians on the scene appended what they called a note of interest to the end of their official report. It read, Blood from the bodies and on the body parts we observed was a dark color in nature. Due to our training, this would indicate lack of oxygen present in the blood and could pose a question as to how long the victims had been down slash dead. Instead of ruling the deaths suicides, Malik concluded the boys were unconscious and in a deep sleep on the railroad tracks under the psychedelic influence of marijuana, and that their deaths had therefore been accidental. The ruling made regarding the deaths was deemed incredible and asinine by Linda Ives, and I would have to agree. Love it. Over the following year, it became a subject of intense media attention, repeatedly disputed by specialists, and eventually became a laughingstock among ordinary citizens who had firsthand experience with the effects of marijuana. So here's the thing about this, and we may get into it, but I'm just going to roll this out real quick. Fami Malik claims that they were so high that they fell asleep on train tracks and could not be roused by an oncoming locomotive. Um, I don't know, like I grew up around railroad tracks and I was, you know, on them constantly just, you know, crossing over them, you know, in my jaunts through the wilderness and whatnot. You can feel when a train's coming from like a mile away. And I can't imagine being so high that you just, you don't even bat an eyelash, you know, or bat an eye, I guess. Uh, you just lay there. Two people. Two people. Not one person. Two people. At the same time, we're just like, oh, we're so fucking high, dude, we're not even going to move. And Malik, apparently at one point, the parents went and they're like how are you saying that they were so high that they couldn't get off the track and he pointed to 
a figure that was five over a hundred, you know, the five one hundredths um, fraction, and said that's how high they were. And they're like, well, we don't understand like the the formula, you know. And he's like, that's how many units. And was just a total dick. And basically told them that they had smoked at least 20 joints before passing out on the railroad tracks. 20! 20. That's a lot. All right, keep going. On a more serious note, the ruling had a damaging impact at a critical juncture, diverting attention away from the essential questions of the case. Among these questions was the seemingly casual yet lethal connections between the two deceased boys and certain Saline County residents involved in dealing highly dangerous drugs like cocaine and crystal methamphetamine. To compound the issue, the ruling placed a burden on the grief-stricken parents to prove that their sons had not taken their own lives or been victims of an accident but were, in fact, murdered. This responsibility should have been properly handled by the police and the medical examiner. Marvella Henry says that in the first days after the death, Rick Elmendorf, the department's chief deputy at the time, stopped by the house often. He kept telling us, I sure hope Malik rules at an accident and not a suicide, she recalls. I thought that was strange. He never, ever mentioned the possibility of murder. The autopsy report showing an absence of any other drug, including alcohol in the boys' systems, cemented her husband's disbelief. When Malik said that they were clean except for marijuana, I knew right then that that man is crazy, Curtis Henry says. That ruling of his was what ended the investigation. It was a two-way deal. I think Sheriff James Steed screwed it up and Malik sealed it. Malik put the icing on the cake. After the deputies finished their investigation at the tracks, they inadvertently left part of one of the bodies a foot behind at the scene. It was only after a cousin of one of the boys who had visited the site reported the discovery that the police retrieved the remains from where they had been left on the tracks. Visitors to the scene reported finding not one, but two gold chains after the police had departed. Unfortunately, one of the chains, which was said to have broken clasps, was never retrieved. Curtis Henry believes that the chain that was not recovered matched the description of one worn by his son Don. The origins of the second chain remain unknown. We're talking about a broken clasp. Why is that a big deal? Because if you're in an altercation and your chain gets ripped off, you're going to have broken clasps. But, eh. Yeah. Eh, not important. Around six months after the incident, the ambulance driver testified at the prosecutor's hearing that she had come across three men in the woods near the tracks while trying to reach the site. Two of the men were in a pickup truck and one was on foot, and they claimed to be members of the Alexander Fire Department who had heard the commotion and wanted to help. However, it was later discovered that Alexander did not actually have a fire department. There was reportedly only one gun found at the scene, Don Henry's cherished 22, discovered lying beside him on the tracks with the barrel shattered. Pearson, a former deputy who is currently suing the department over various issues, including concerns related to the handling of this case, claims that the weapon was bagged and sealed as evidence. However, video footage from a Little Rock television station, KARK, shows an item in the truck where the bodies were loaded, which appears to be the barrel of a rifle. The item is not bagged and is being casually examined by a man who is not in uniform, seemingly a bystander. 
When confronted with the tape and asked about the item later, sheriff's officials stated that it was one of the deputy's long-handled flashlights. Those are difficult to mistake for right. one another. Like, either, if that's the case, then it was like a fucking elephant gun. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 A twenty-two rifle's fairly small. Right. It's like a size of your thumb. You're not going to mistake yeah. that for a mag light. Right. Whether the item was Henry's rifle, another weapon, or a flashlight, as the deputies claimed, remains uncertain. However, it is evident that no ballistics tests were ever conducted on the rifle, which was said to have been recovered, to determine if it had been fired. Talent's mistake during the investigation became almost legendary due to its sheer absurdity. He used the end of the train as his reference point in locating evidence in his report. Unfortunately, when the train departed, the reference point was gone, rendering the report useless. I mean, come on, man. Wow. Okay, so a moving so what he's saying here is, you know, like like if something happened to your house, it'd be like, okay, the the car was broken into twenty feet south of the cryptique crypt. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And this was found. 20 feet to the east of that. Mm -hmm. And he used a train as the reference right. point. Right, you may as well use clouds. Something that moves, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, so about uh, 200 feet south of the cum cumulonimbus clouds that were there at the time, this, ha I mean, it is, if it wasn't, you know, if this was... <sighs> finding some stolen Girl Scout cookies, that would be funny. But we're talking about people's lives, and had this case been handled properly, there would probably be a lot of people that are still alive, and, and a lot of those people that we covered on Tuesday would probably still be alive too, but anyway. What did Pearson say about the mistake? This mistake was not only laughable, but also, according to Pearson and others, indicative of a cover-up of police incompetence rather than evidence of criminality in the initial stages of the investigation. Even if the deaths were treated as accidents, it took hours to remove the bodies and complete the necessary reports. Surprisingly, Sheriff James Steed, who was responsible for overseeing the investigation, did not visit the scene during this time. Nevertheless, he consistently praised the handling of the investigation despite not personally overseeing it. Tests that could have resolved the mystery surrounding the tarp by examining the boys' clothing for foreign fibers were never conducted. The parents were initially told by deputies that the clothing had been tested and no tarp fibers were found. However, they later discovered that these tests had never taken place. When the boys' bodies were exhumed, a medical examiner from Atlanta revealed evidence that contradicted Malik's earlier conclusions regarding the cause of death. Despite this critical forensic error, the Arkansas Sheriff's Association did not acknowledge the pattern of mistakes emerging. Instead, they expressed unwavering support for Malik and hired an investigator to find any negative information about the discrediting physician. The investigator's efforts were unsuccessful, leading the Atlanta pathologist to express frustration over the illogical focus on his background rather than the actual findings in his reports. So this pathologist comes out with a conflicting report, and instead of saying, well, we need to check out this guy's credentials, we need to make sure you know that he has the skills that are necessary to you know, come to this conclusion, they're like, ah, let's find out if he cheats on his wife. You know what I mean? Like, let's find out 
things that we can leverage him with instead of just saying, well, okay, we need to check his credentials. It's insane. (sighs) The move to support Malik, despite the contradictory evidence, seemed illogical unless one considers the sheriff's political motives for keeping him in office. Having a compliant medical examiner who will unquestioningly endorse local officials' findings on causes of death grants those officials significant unchecked power. Sound familiar? In a case like this, such power could have completely stifled the investigation, which almost happened. If it hadn't been for the persistent efforts of Don Henry's and Kevin Ives' parents, the boys' deaths would still be officially listed as accidents. The parents' refusal to accept the official version of events led to the emergence of remarkable information. The second autopsy, which was contrary to Malik's ruling, revealed crucial information. The boys had been wounded and likely dead before being placed on the tracks. Henry had a stab wound in his back while Ives had a crushed skull. I guess they just got so high that one of them decided to stab himself in his back and the other one crushed his own skull before they decided to go to sleep on the railroad tracks. Yeah. Furthermore, the grand jury that ordered the second autopsy discovered that nearly every question regarding the boys' deaths had a connection to the drug scene in Saline County. Many of these drug-related matters also intersected with local police activity. The jurors were so concerned about the potential involvement of the police that they asked the state police to investigate this possibility further. By the time a grand jury wrapped up its hearings into the deaths, no killer or killers and no motive had been identified. Instead, the foreman concluded, quote, We find that there is a tremendous drug problem that exists in Saline County. Wow. That, I've never heard of a grand jury just like busting out their own findings. It's always, we find that there's not enough evidence to prosecute in this case. Or, you know, there's plenty of evidence to prosecute this person. It's not your whole county's fucked. You know what I mean? It's just so so out there. But In December 1988, 16 months after the tragedy at the tracks, the spotlight on Saline County, Arkansas intensified with scrutiny extending from its elected officials to known criminals. Despite this increased attention and ongoing investigations, the murders in the county continued. We'll tell you about these murders after a quick word from our sponsor. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Tell us about these murders. Many of these murders were directly linked to drugs. Unlike the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives, most of them remain unsolved to this day. One of the potentially related deaths occurred during the summer of 1988, almost a year after the boys' deaths and around the time their bodies were being exhumed. Keith Coney, who was close to Don Henry and Kevin Ives in age, tragically died when he collided with the back of an 18-wheeler while riding his motorcycle on Interstate 40. However, while Don Henry and Kevin Ives were ordinary teenagers, Coney had a reputation as a troublemaker. 
What happened to Coney, according to reports collected by the state police, was that he was fleeing for his life and being chased when he died. Pearson said she heard from other deputies that Coney's throat had been slit. He jumped on his bike and was apparently being chased by his attacker when he lost control and veered into the semi. Douglas Wade Booney Bearden, a young man associated with drug dealing and burglaries, informed the state police during an interview that two days before Keith Coney's death, Coney had expressed his belief that police were somehow involved in the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives. Despite this information, Coney's body was not subjected to any autopsy and his death was treated as a traffic fatality. Does this fit the, the things we talked about for needing a, uh, an autopsy? Again, kind of seems so. Checks every box, but, you know, an outbreak of a disease, so. But I guess you get to pick who you want to have autopsies and who you don't. Must be nice. Another significant link connecting Keith Coney's death to that of Don Henry and Kevin Ives emerges from the testimony of the witnesses. At the time of his death, Coney was allegedly involved in selling drugs for a local used car dealer named James Calloway. According to witness statements, Callaway was indirectly connected to at least one of the men the ambulance driver encountered in the woods on the night of the boys' deaths, who had claimed to be Alexander Fireman. These men were later identified as Tommy Lee Madison, Alan Smith, and Gary Pullian, all residents of Alexander. Madison, who faced charges of possession of a controlled substance, informed federal officials that he regularly bought cocaine from Pullian and another Alexander resident named Ken Cook. Like Coney, Cook was reportedly employed by Callaway, according to multiple witnesses. Even more intriguingly, Callaway knew both Don Henry and Kevin Ives personally. He was, in a way, responsible for their having met. About six months before they died, Callaway's daughter had introduced the boys. She knew Kevin from school, and she'd grown up living near Don. Curtis Henry says Calloway came by his house frequently in the days following the murders, asking how the investigation was going. At least one comment he made struck Marvella Henry as odd. He came down to the house, she recalls, and he said, Curtis, I wonder if you didn't just beat up Don and put those boys on the track yourself. Of course, we were still in shock at the time, and I couldn't believe he was saying that, but then James had always been kind of uncouth. Kind of uncouth is a very generous way of putting that. Anyway, continuing with the quote. When Curtis asked him why he would say a thing like that, James sort of brushed it off. He said something like, oh, I've just been trying to figure out things that could have happened. Of course, that was long before we even knew that they'd been beaten. Keith McCaskill, another significant figure in this puzzling case, was the next to die. His death occurred in November of 1988, just two days after Sheriff James Steed was defeated for re-election. This was also a time when pressure was increasing on the grand jury to identify the killers of Don Henry and Kevin Ives before it was required to disband. Unlike Calloway, who had been considered a prime suspect in the boys' deaths at one point, McCaskill had never been a suspect. However, his importance stemmed from his role as the manager of a bar on the county line called the Wagon Wheel, as he had connections with numerous people in the area. So I guess this is kind of a hub. His sudden and untimely death adds yet another layer of intrigue to the already complex and murky circumstances surrounding the case. Curtis Henry, Don Henry's father, considered McCaskill a personal friend. He was working with me real regular, Henry says. He knew everything, and when he found out something, he'd tell me. Pearson also regarded McCaskill as a very dear and close friend. 
Before I got into law enforcement, I worked as a liquor store clerk on the county line, she says. Keith was my protector. So one thing that's important before we get into this is Keith McCaskill was a known badass. 6'2", 200 and some odd pounds, broke up bar fights. People would be using bottles and, and stuff like that, and he'd just break it up with his bare hands. They said that he broke up knife fights. This guy could handle himself. He was like basically a local barroom brawler that people really kind of knew not to fuck with. But go ahead. She knew McCaskill used drugs, principally speed, and sold some on the side, but says that after she became a deputy, he never did drugs nor mentioned them in her presence. Maybe it's not exactly the way things ought to be done, she says, but Keith gave me a lot of good information on things I was investigating. And in exchange for that, I turned a blind eye to some things I might not have approved of. McCaskill was friends with several policemen. He seems to have had the same tolerance for information relationship with all of them. One of the pieces of information Pearson says McCaskill passed on to her concerned Dan Harmon, the county's present, again as of the time of this article, prosecuting attorney and Richard Garrett, Harmon's law partner and former assistant prosecutor. I was one of those ones who got the investigation into Harmon and Garrett started, Pearson says. Keith was the one who told me about Harmon. He told me I might want to watch Dan Harmon, that he was one of our largest suppliers. Pearson remembers learning of McCaskill's murder when James Steed, the newly defeated sheriff, came into the office and announced, you ain't gonna believe who just got his damn throat cut. She went to the scene and soon after Harmon and Garrett arrived together. Garrett described McCaskill for reporters as an extremely intelligent and knowledgeable man, able to communicate with all levels of society. So kind of a uh, Count St. Germain type. That's right. To interject some slight humor into this. He acknowledged that McCaskill had been cooperating in the investigation into the boys' deaths. He had been asked to keep his ears open and pass along bar talk. Garrett said he had recently interviewed McCaskill about the case, but that his information had not been spectacular. Certainly nothing worth getting killed over. Keith McCaskill's death was brutal and clearly intentional. His body was discovered in the carport of his home in Benton, and he had been brutally stabbed 113 times, all wounds being above the waist. It appears as if he had put up a fierce fight for his life as his hands and arms showed signs of defensive wounds. Around the county line, McCaskill was renowned for his fighting ability, like we already talked about. His formidable fighting skills made the circumstances surrounding his death even more mysterious and raised questions about potential motives for his murder. Pearson was shocked by McCaskill's death and even more stunned when investigators claimed to have solved the case within 24 hours. The parents of a 19-year-old boy named Ronald Shane Smith, who lived across the street from McCaskill, informed Richard Garrett that their son knew something about what happened. Within hours of the discovery of the murder, Shane Smith was arrested and charged with murder. According to two different sources, Shane Smith was either 5'11 and 180 pounds or 5'5 and 140 pounds. But both seem to indicate that he possessed a below average IQ and no prior criminal record. He had known McCaskill for years, having lived across the street and mowed his yard. Shane even bought a coin collection from McCaskill. Shane's father, Ronnie Smith, insists they brought their son forward as a witness and a potential victim of the crime, but instead the police accused him of being the perpetrator. The swift arrest and charging of Shane Smith raised eyebrows and added to the suspicion surrounding the case, 
with questions arising about whether he was genuinely involved or if he was simply an easy target for the authorities. While there is evidence placing Shane Smith at the scene of McCaskill's murder, such as his bloody clothes found nearby, he has consistently maintained that he is not the killer. According to Smith's account, he had arranged to buy a silver tray for McCaskill and was waiting for him in the darkened driveway. Upon finding Smith there, McCaskill seemed startled. The two men entered the kitchen together and were suddenly confronted by three individuals wearing black suits, masks, and carrying guns. Clown masks. Yeah, so, yeah, it was clown masks and knives and, yeah, horrific. Only one of the men spoke, and he aimed a gun at Smith's head, ordering him to stay in the kitchen. The masked men then forced McCaskill outside, where a struggle ensued, accompanied by McCaskill's screams for help, followed by eerie silence. Shane Smith's version of events indicates that he was not the perpetrator, but a witness to a horrific crime that unfolded before him. The presence of the masked men in black suits adds another layer of mystery and raises questions about the motivations and identities of those behind McCaskill's brutal murder. According to his statement, the masked men forced him outside, and when he reached the door, they pushed him forward, causing him to fall onto McCaskill's still-breathing body. They then placed a knife in his hand, took photographs, and taunted him, saying that he was now an accessory to the crime. The men proceeded to threaten him with death if he dared to speak about what happened. Smith also informed the police that he had slightly altered his initial accounts of the incident due to the intense fear of retaliation. His fear and intimidation helped to shed light on the complexity of the case and the potential dangers faced by those who may possess critical information about the murders and the individuals behind them. The case against Shane Smith was based solely on circumstantial evidence and had several contradictions. It lacked essential elements such as witnesses, a confession, a murder weapon, and a clear motive. Despite these shortcomings, Rick Elmendorf, the Benton Chief of Police, declared that the murderer had been apprehended. However, he also emphasized that there was no indication at that point suggesting a connection between McCaskill's murder and the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives. Don Birdsong, the state policeman investigating the boys' deaths, swiftly concurred with this assertion. The lack of a strong case against Shane Smith and the reluctance to connect McCaskill's murder to the earlier tragedy of the boys' deaths added to the sense of confusion and mystery surrounding the investigations in Saline County. The public and the victims' families were left wondering if the true culprits would ever be brought to justice, or if the cases would remain unsolved. There is nothing linking this case with Don Henry and Kevin Ives' case, Birdsong said the same day. Nothing at all. Speculation that there were hurts the investigation into the train case, because if anyone had information on the Ives-Henry deaths, he will be afraid to come forward if he believes McCaskill was killed because of he was an informer. More than a few people, including Pearson, believe to the contrary that stifling talk and perhaps sending an intimidating message to Larry Davis, the newly elected sheriff, is exactly why McCaskill was killed. I will never believe that Shane Smith attacked Keith McCaskill and that Keith could not have fought him off. I've seen Keith in too many fights and none of them lasted long. I think he was killed to send out a message to keep your mouth shut. End quote. <laughs> Pearson says that McCaskill believed he was being followed in the weeks prior to his death, and that he also believed the investigation into the Henry and Ives deaths was nearing a solution. We'd talk about it, and he'd say, don't worry about it, baby, it's all going to come out before long. During the trial, prosecutors emphasized the presence of Smith's bloody clothes, the fact that McCaskill's silver tray was found in Smith's possession, 
and Smith's inconsistent statements. On the other hand, Smith's defense attorneys attempted to introduce evidence that would cast doubt on the possibility that Smith acted alone in McCaskill's murder. But you can find out more about this evidence after a quick break. Welcome back, group keepers. So the defense pointed out a clump of hair found in McCaskill's left hand that did not match either Smith's or McCaskill's hair. Is that not evidence that there was a third person? I mean, that seems extremely unlikely that McCaskill just happened to have a handful of somebody's hair as he was murdered and that person had you know was not there they had nothing to do with it or anything it's like what would you need would you need video to prove that there was someone else there i mean this is for me this is open and shut if there's other person's hair in the murder victim's hand you find that person period Anyway, uh, so there was also a bloody handprint discovered in the house that did not belong to Smith. It did not belong to McCaskill either. So, yeah, there is a an unidentified bloody handprint on the wall. It's probably probably been there. You know, it's probably been there for a while, so... The defense also sought to present other evidence that would challenge the testimony of Dr. Fami Malik, the state medical examiner. However, Circuit Court Judge John Cole ruled that this evidence was inadmissible. Hmm. You can control a lot when you're allowed to say what's admissible and what's not. And then if it continues up the food chain, and then people start to, you know, make the connection. Oh, so this guy was found, that guy was found murdered. Oh, those guys were all found. Okay, well, yeah, then we'll just, uh, we're not going to take the case. We're going to say that uh, this evidence was rightfully ruled inadmissible. But despite the efforts to defend Smith, the jury found him guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced him to 10 years in prison. It did little to clarify the overall circumstances surrounding McCaskill's murder or its possible connection to the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives. Just as the accidental death theory failed to fully resolve the Don Henry and Kevin Ives case, the conviction of Shane Smith did not conclusively solve the murder of Keith McCaskill. Testimony that was excluded from Smith's trial was deemed significant and remarkable, like the evidence that had been overlooked or disregarded in the previous case. When Smith's lawyers appealed the conviction, highlighting the critical testimony that had not been admitted, the Arkansas Court of Appeals ultimately overturned his conviction. So that's good. The exclusion of crucial evidence and testimony, combined with the unanswered questions and inconsistencies in both cases, further fueled public skepticism and suspicion about the investigations and the authorities' handling of the cases. This is what the jury had not been allowed to hear. Any testimony about McCaskill's physical prowess. The defense had listed 32 potential witnesses ready to describe what one called McCaskill's, quote, 
supernatural pugilistic abilities. So basically they're saying that he's an awesome fighter. All right. Testimony. This is this was also not allowed in. Testimony that one month before the murder, an Alexander man had been offered $4,000 to kill McCaskill. Interesting. The testimony of David Hart, a former Kamek Village police officer who said McCaskill had asked him weeks before he died, quote, who in Saline County could he trust to give some information to? End quote. Hart, who said he told McCaskill he didn't know who could be trusted in Saline County, also testified that McCaskill feared for his life, quote, because he knew something about the train thing. End quote. Also not allowed. Testimony that within a few hours of his death, McCaskill had used crystal methamphetamine to stay awake because somebody was after him. Malik reported finding no traces of drugs in McCaskill's body. So he reported that, so, you know, he can say whatever he wants. And I don't know why they would leave that out, except, it, like, they would say that he wasn't on Crystal, because when you're on Crystal, you can do things you cannot do when you're not on Crystal. My dad has seen somebody that was on Crystal Meth get shot in the chest with a 12-gauge shotgun and run a mile away. That, that's where they eventually found him. He got away from the cops still after being shot in the chest with a shotgun. So you would think that he'd be, you know, even more of a handful at that point. And the testimony of four witnesses who claimed that McCaskill had told them he was being followed and feared for his life, which, I mean, I can kind of see in some of these cases they're saying it's hearsay, but it's a lot of smoke. <laughs> it's just a lot of smoke, man. Witnesses have said that on the night before he died, as McCaskill was watching the election returns for Sheriff on TV, he took two pennies out of his pocket, threw them on the bar, and said, if Steed loses tonight, my life isn't worth this much. End quote. So the McCaskill case lingers on, as dark as the driveway where he was killed. Upon being sworn in in January of 1989, Sheriff Larry Davis pledged to do whatever it took to solve the mystery of the Henry and Ives deaths. The month Davis took office in January of 89, Gregory Allen, also unfortunately known as Fat Greg Collins, who was 26 at the time, was found dead from a shotgun blast to the face in rural Nevada County. Interestingly, Collins had been subpoenaed to testify before the now disbanded grand jury just a month prior to his death, but had not appeared. Multiple witnesses informed state police investigators that he was a drug user who had been involved in burglaries with Booney Bearden, the same individual who had previously informed the police about Keith Coney's alleged suspicions of police involvement in the boys' deaths just before Coney's own death. Adding intrigue to the case, Collins's mother, who had been found dead three months earlier with a 38 caliber pistol shot to the chest at a deer camp in Dallas County, her death had been ruled a suicide as no witnesses were present during the incident. Now, with her son's murder, some people were beginning to question the circumstances surrounding her death as well. The sequence of deaths and potential links between Collins, Bearden, and the suspicions surrounding the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives raised even more questions about possible connections and motives behind the killings. 
For a time, an Alexander man, Clark Farmer, who'd also been questioned in connection with the Henry and Ives deaths and who was reportedly a friend of Keith Coney, was considered a prime suspect in Fat Greg Collins' death. In January, Gregory Allen Collins was killed, and then in March, Booney Bearden vanished without a trace. Acting on a tip, the police discovered Bearden's shirt floating in the Arkansas River at Tar Camp near Redfield, where the anonymous caller claimed he'd been murdered. Woodrow May, an admitted drug dealer, described Bearden as intelligent and close friends with a Hot Springs drug dealer who has been implicated in both the deaths of Keith Coney and Gregory Allen Collins. Furthermore, Bearden himself has been linked as a suspect in the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives, along with several burglaries of discount stores in Louisiana. May says he believes Bearden may have conveniently disappeared, an assessment with which Pearson agrees. Booney was right in the middle of all of it, she says, but I don't think Booney's dead. All right, you want to tell us what happened on April 3rd, 1989? Sure. The next month on April 3rd of 1989, another Saline County man, 21-year-old Jeff Rhodes, disappeared. Two weeks later, Rhodes' charred body was found in a dump near Benton. He'd been shot once in the head and his body had been mutilated with a knife. Sheriff Davis said, We have no idea who killed Rhodes or any motive for his death. Before the body was found, however, Rhodes' father had come up from Texas to help in the search. During that time, he told reporters that during a phone call two weeks earlier, his son had told him he had to get out of town because he knew about the Henry, Ives, and McCaskill murders. According to court testimony, the drug trade in the area had connections to a Benton cocaine supplier named Ron Kettleson and a man named Frank Pilcher Jr. was convicted of Rhodes' death. Pilcher allegedly claimed that Jordan Kettleson, Ron Kettleson's son, was responsible for Keith McCaskill's murder. A few weeks after Rhodes' death, Jordan Kettleson was arrested in Carthage, Texas, while driving a van registered to his father. Inside the van, police discovered more than 400 grams of cocaine. The potential involvement of Jordan Kettleson and McCaskill's murder further blurred the lines between the various cases, leaving investigators and the public with more questions than answers. In the summer of 1989, two years after the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives, another potential suspect in their murders, Richard Winters, was fatally shot in what seemed to be a robbery staged to conceal a murder. Winters had been called as the fourth witness to testify before the grand jury a year earlier. Like Keith Coney, who died in the suspicious motorcycle crash, and Ken Cook, who was reportedly involved in drug dealings with at least one of the men claiming to be firemen at the scene of the Henry and Ives deaths, Winters worked for James Calloway. Testimony collected by the Arkansas State Police indicated that prior to his death, Winters had been talking about what happened to Don Henry and Kevin Ives. Some individuals interviewed claimed Winters had said he had assaulted the boys, while others stated he had actually killed them. Claims of that sort were regarded as leads, but they were also one of the problems state police investigators ran into in this case. Literally dozens of people have been reported claiming credit for the murders. Pearson says boasting of responsibility for the murders became a popular tool of drug dealers wanting to help assure that they were paid. Winters met a violent end while participating in an armed robbery of a craps game in Lenoke County. During the robbery attempt, one of the intended victims, seemingly prepared for the attack, retaliated by opening fire with a 12-gauge sawed-off shotgun. However, despite various investigations and testimonies, the truth behind the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives, as well as the related incidents, has yet to be definitively unveiled. In June of 1990, yet another convicted drug dealer from Benton, 
Jordan Colin Kettleson, age 21, was found dead in the driveway of a house near Lake Hamilton in Garland County. Jordan was the son of reputed drug dealer, as we mentioned, Ron Kettleson, and had been named as a suspect in the stabbing death of Keith McCaskill. He died from a single gunshot blast to the head. Garland County Sheriff's deputies ruled the death a suicide. The death of Jordan Kettleson added to the list of mysterious and tragic incidents that remained unresolved in the area. Kettleson's girlfriend said she'd witnessed the shooting. There was no further investigation. Jordan's death certainly warranted a more thorough investigation, given his known drug connections, his being named as a suspect in the murder of Keith McCaskill, and the witness's report of his violent behavior. Shane Smith's parents were left wondering if their son's handprint matched the bloody print found in McCaskill's house. However, no handprint was taken, and there was no autopsy performed in this case. Unfortunately, the situation took an irreversible turn when Kettleson's body was cremated within days, eliminating any possibility of further examination. Don Henry, Kevin Ives, Keith Coney, Keith McCaskill, Greg Collins, Booney Bearden, Jeff Rhodes, Richard Winters, Jordan Kettleson, the list goes on. If Don Henry and Kevin Ives were involved in the drug trade, they would have found themselves entangled in a dangerous and vast underworld. The presence of drug-related activities in Saline County seemed pervasive, with reports suggesting that Gayla Henry's boyfriend and even a local police officer were involved in selling the drugs. The indictment of the police officer by the grand jury, who later fled the state before charges were filed, further adds to the complexities and potential corruption surrounding the case. The missing half hour in Don Henry's life just before his tragic death holds significant importance in solving the mystery. What transpired during that period could potentially shed light on the events that led to the boy's demise and unravel the web of connections between individuals involved in the drug trade and the law enforcement in Saline County. As investigations continued and new evidence came to light, the search for answers and justice persisted. Did they? But the full truth behind the deaths of John Henry and Kevin Ives, as well as the related incidents, remained elusive. Between 11.30 and midnight, Kevin dropped by his next-door neighbor's house. Tim McCauley, being one of Kevin's closest friends, stated to police that he saw Kevin in his car parked in the driveway and went out to have a conversation with him, as they often did before parting ways for the night. This detail from Macaulay might be crucial in piecing together the events leading up to the tragic deaths. As authorities and investigators continued to gather testimonies and evidence, these accounts from friends and witnesses played a vital role in trying to uncover the truth behind the boy's untimely demise. The conversation was unremarkable. Macaulay said Kevin, quote, didn't act scared or like anything was wrong. When Kevin left, he said, I've got to run. He didn't say where he was going. The sequence of events leading up to the tragedy begins with Don Henry and Kevin Ives being seen together at the Roadrunner service station in Bryan at 12.30 a.m. Afterward, they went to Don Henry's home and informed Curtis Henry that they were going hunting. Subsequently, they left the house at approximately 1 a.m. That was the last time they were seen alive, except by the individuals responsible for their deaths. And... So they they went out and hunted somewhat frequently. And before we get into, you know, what season was it, this and that, they were spotlighting. They were illegal hunt, 
hunters. Like they would go out and basically spotlight whatever they could find, probably mostly raccoons and coyotes and stuff being that they, you know, brought a 22. I don't really think you're bringing most deer down with the 22, but before we, you know, raise those questions, they were illegal hunters. But this timeline serves as a critical starting point in the investigation as it helps to establish the boys' whereabouts and actions before the events leading to their untimely demise unfolded. As authorities gathered and analyzed this information, they sought to piece together the puzzle of what happened during the crucial hours between the boys leaving the Henry home and the tragic discovery of their bodies on the train tracks. Two witnesses initially reported seeing Don at the stock car races near the county line. However, one of these witnesses, Charles Beck Jr., later changed his story and denied having seen Don at the track. Such inconsistencies can hinder the efforts to establish a clear timeline of events and understand the circumstances leading up to the boys' deaths. The uncertainty surrounding Charles Beck Jr.'s testimony and the lingering questions about his whereabouts on the night of the boys' deaths further complicate the investigation. According to testimony collected at the prosecutor's hearing and given to the state police, Beck denied having been with the boys on that fateful night. Curtis Henry, Don's father, recalls being in bed when Don came into the bedroom to inform him about their hunting plans. Curtis Henry knows that Kevin Ives was also there with Don, but he remains unsure if someone else might have been with them as well. The lack of clarity about who might have been with Don and Kevin at the time adds to the mystery and leaves open the possibility of other individuals being involved in the events leading up to their tragic deaths. The testimony that Beck had been in the woods with the boys on the night of their deaths, as recounted by a 13-year-old girl named Sharon Liggins, adds a significant twist to the case. You want to tell us about that twist? According to Liggins, Beck's cousin informed her that Beck had revealed being with Don and Kevin that night and that, quote, two black guys, unquote, had threatened them not to speak about knocking the boys in the head and tying them to the tracks. This information is particularly interesting in hindsight because it emerged so early in the case, almost six months before the ambulance driver's account of encountering men in the woods was revealed at the prosecutor's hearing and nearly a year before the second autopsy confirmed that the boys had indeed suffered head injuries. The significance of this testimony lies in the possible connection between Beck's presence in the woods with the boys and the subsequent events leading to their deaths. It highlights the importance of thoroughly investigating all leads and testimonies, even those that may initially appear insignificant or unconnected to the case. These early revelations, along with the information from the second autopsy, raise crucial questions about what truly happened that night and who may have been involved in the boys' tragic deaths. When called before the prosecutor's hearing months later, Liggins repeated her testimony. However, when the cousin was called to testify, she denied ever having said that Beck mentioned being with the boys. Initially, he confirmed that he frequently went spotlighting with Don Henry along the tracks near where the bodies were later found. He stated that he had intended to go with them on the night of the murders, but forgot and went to the stock car races instead. This account was also repeated during his testimony before the grand jury. However, in the following year, after the deaths of Keith Coney and Keith McCaskill, Beck's refusal to take a polygraph test raised suspicions and cast doubt on the veracity of his earlier statements. The decision to decline the polygraph test might have led to questions about whether he was withholding crucial information about what happened that night 
or if there was any involvement in the events leading to the boys' deaths. A lot of people are afraid to talk, Pearson said. She includes Jean Duffy among those who have a right to be afraid. The former head of the Saline County Drug Task Force, who went into hiding, refused to testify before another grand jury. Yeah, sounds like if you were the head of a drug task force, you might, you mm-hmm. might hide. Mm-hmm. I don't blame Jean Duffy for getting out of there, Pearson said. That woman's life wouldn't be worth a flip if she was still around. Jean found out things on a lot of political officials, and that made her dangerous. Yeah, she was a little crazy, but you must be to work in this field. I was too. End quote. The father's conviction that whatever happened to their sons occurred at or near the spot where their bodies were found is a deeply held belief born out of the profound loss and grief they experienced. As parents, they have an innate desire to understand and make sense of the tragic events that led to the deaths of their beloved sons. The location of the boys' dismembered bodies on the tracks is still a powerful and haunting reminder of the horrifying nature of their deaths. They have been over the possibilities a thousand times. The boys stumbled upon a marijuana patch or an illegal operation and were killed for their curiosity. They had earlier found or found out about a marijuana patch or drug drop possibly from a passing train and were killed by the dealers for whom the package was intended. Somebody intended to rough them up, perhaps over a debt, and the incident got out of hand. Even the possibility that the whole tragedy had nothing to do with drugs. Whatever the scenario, Curtis Henry thinks it more than likely that the boys knew the person or persons who killed them. Don hunted all his life, he says. It was August. Dry. There ain't no way you could have slipped upon him. And he was armed. I think he would have had to have known them. But despite all the speculation and all their efforts and all the time that has passed, they still don't have any answers. And that's hard. I'm convinced that my son is dead and gone, Curtis Henry says, and that the sheriff's office screwed it up and that Malik finished screwing it up. And after that, I'm not convinced of anything. All the parents feel betrayed by the legal system, both county and state. And like Pearson and countless others who've watched the sorry spectacle unfold, they've learned to distrust authority. There are two things I do not trust, Curtis Henry says. That's a law officer and a state medical examiner. Hell, I can deal with the drug dealers, says Pearson. They're two-faced and they'll tell you that, but a dirty cop is somebody you're supposed to be able to trust. Five weeks before the death of Keith McCaskill in September of 1988, Richard Garrett, the deputy prosecutor, and Mel Hanks, a reporter for Little Rock's KARK-TV, received a cleanly typed, unsigned letter with a Little Rock postmark. The writer said he or she felt the information contained in the letter while reading a newspaper article about the murders. Harmon dismissed the letter as the apparent writings of an amateur psychic, but its contents remain an intriguing element of this long and bizarre saga. The letter said the boys were attacked by two men, one about six foot two and weighing 240 to 250 pounds, and the other between 5'6 and 5'8 weighing 145 pounds. It said the incident took place below a large embankment by an old structure that has since been torn down. The writer said the boys had tried to run to the tracks about a half mile away, but the men caught up with them. One of the boys was hit with what the writer describes as a large piece of bumper, while the other was knocked unconscious and tied up with blue plastic rope. The large men knew the boys personally, the letter writer said. The small boy said his father would kill both the men if he knew. 
Was the letter, as Harmon suggested, the work of a meddlesome amateur psychic? Or was it an attempt by someone too frightened to come forth publicly to pass along some information? We will probably never know. Hanks found a site near the tracks that closely matched the description in the letter, but he says results of an analysis of the letter, which was supposed to have been performed by state police, have never been released. When he called the state police to ask why, he was told the letter, like the tarp at the beginning of this case, has disappeared. Prosecutor Dan Harmon would later be convicted of multiple charges and served prison time, but nothing involved this case. Dan Harmon has been the center of this investigation as he was nominated as a special prosecutor. The man many claim was at the heart of the drug smuggling operation had access to everything. Every witness, every statement, every clue. Okay, let's just take a quick break and we'll get back with our final thoughts. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Alright, so here's what happened. These guys, they go out spotlighting. They're going hunting, and they come across this kind of open, I guess I wouldn't really call it an airstrip. It'd be like a drop site where planes can fly low and drop packages off. And I believe it was, I can't, it's, this has been such a long podcast, I can't even remember in the beginning if we talked about it, but it was something like, um, it was like five pounds of cocaine, a bunch of weed, and some sort of transponder had gone missing. So that's a big deal, right? Like, I mean, yeah, I don't know how much five pounds of cocaine was worth in, you know, 1987, but the problem is the transponder. So if you find that, then as far as I understand it, you would probably have access to everywhere that that bag had been, or at least that transponder. And it could be theoretically traced back to an airstrip in Colombia or an airstrip in Mexico or, or just wherever. So these guys, which I believe Dan Harmon was in the middle of it, from the beginning, I believe he was at that drop site that night because he wanted to make sure that his little hooligans didn't mess things up again. Now, these two boys show up, and there's a lot of stuff we just did not have time to get into, but these guys just kind of happen upon the scene, and then it's like, oh, well, maybe you're the ones that took that you know, last drop and you're coming back for another one. And there's a report from somebody who was uh, drinking on this night and did not want to drive past police, but he saw police basically beating up Kevin Ives and Don Henry at a phone booth. And he was supposed to turn, I guess he assumes that they were Don Henry and Kevin Ives, I should say, and he was supposed to turn down that road to go to his house, but just kept going because 
he didn't want to get busted for a DWI. So they bring him back, and then these cops had either beaten him so badly that they weren't going to make it, or they were like, well, at this point, they're just a liability, so we got to get rid of them. And they put him out on the tracks and then covered everything up. There's a lot of witness tampering going on here. I mean, the things that we talked about are minor in the fact that they're just kind of like suggesting, right? Like, well, I sure hope they find that it was an accident, not a suicide. I mean, that's kind of fucking with somebody a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, that's not something you say to someone that has just lost their child or, oh, maybe it was you that beat him up and threw him down there on the tracks. Maybe, uh, maybe we could make a case against you because, uh, yeah, you guys didn't get along so good. You know, kind of, it's not saying I'm going to try and prosecute you for your son's murder if you don't shut up. But when you're dealing with people like this, they're not going to come out and say that. They're going to make little hints and stuff like that. And I believe that everything centers around Dan Harmon. And that's why it was such a big deal because every witness, every statement, every clue he had access to, he could confirm or deny. He could tell people, this is the person you need to go tell to keep their mouth shut. Or this is the person that needs to be murdered by fucking stabbed to death by men in clown masks. That sort of stuff. He had access to everything, and everything was fucked up. So that's what I'm saying happened. What are your final thoughts? <sighs> that that could be. I mean, I could just say I agree with you, but I don't know. I'm kind of more... I'm thinking of how much this sounds like Reacher on... What is it, Amazon Prime? Haven't seen it. Because it's the whole season... Yeah, the whole season is basically unraveling this conspiracy that starts with, you know, one person found dead and then you follow a trail and another person is dead and it's real similar. It's all about crime and how many people are connected to it and how many people are profiting from it in a small town. You know, yeah. you've got police involved, spoilers for Reacher, you've got police involved. I mean, everybody's involved in some way. And mm -hmm. it sounds like that's the case here. You know, it's a small town and uh, it's like, you know, some places the the farming is their industry or right. coal is their industry. Meth is their industry here. Yeah. And everybody is murdering to try to cover it up. And it's just causing this like snowball to happen, you know, like, like we discussed you know the kids figure out something or they see something they're not supposed to see mm -hmm. you know and I wonder when we have that line about like two black guys who come mm -hmm. to threaten them is that two African Americans or is that two people in black like I'm pretty is sure possible it's... these are the same two enforcer types who came to McCaskill's house yeah or two of the three, however many were there. Um, yeah, it's it's scary, but it feels pretty believable. Yeah. 
I mean, with the two black guys thing, I mean, that's just everybody's go-to, though, right? I mean, who who did it? Uh, it was two black guys. I don't know what this town's, uh, you know, ethnicity pie chart looks like, but I, you know, you do bring up a point. Did now the quote was two black guys in quotation marks, but if he said, you know, like oh, two black guys in in black, you know, and he meant to say two guys in black, that's another possibility too. Or like two black figures or right, yeah. whatever. Yeah. I, I think that there's this prevailing thought that police officers are all like banking money and they're not. And their pay varies greatly. If you are a chief of detectives in Brooklyn, you're going to make a shit ton more money than you do if you're chief of detectives in Mena, Arkansas. You know what I mean? You, in, yeah. And obviously the living expenses are different, but you know, places with more resources have higher paid individuals that work there, and that's just how it is. But my point is that these cops that are working here, they could be afraid too, first of all. Second, they could be bad people too. And third, if you're living in a little tiny town like this, maybe the cop you know, in 87 was making $14,000 a year. Does that give him a right to be a thug or do anything against the law? Of course not. But it does make me think, like, well, maybe if he was making 35000 a year, he wouldn't have been, you know, so easily drawn into this. And we've talked about that before. But it just made me think of it when you were talking about, you know, industries for regions like coal or oil or whatever, then, yeah, I mean... I guess if you're looking for a place to drop millions, perhaps billions of dollars of drugs off every year, and you know this little town in Arkansas, and you've got the medical examiner in your pocket, and you've got the prosecuting attorney in your pocket, and you've got the sheriff in your pocket, this is a great industry. I don't think it brought much, you know, I don't think that the town or county or anything benefited much from it, but certain people certainly did. And if you want to hear all the details of this case, you can check out True Crime Garage in their October 2022 four-part episode, The Boys on the Tracks. Anything else you want to throw in here? I don't know. I mean, this seems so much like a movie or a TV show or something. It's so bizarre. It was a TV show. It was uh, Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> it's also kind of like, I mean, like you're saying, I mean, people, it's something I've thought about before, not the drug thing, but, you know, my fiance is from a small town mm -hmm. and we've thought before about how if you could bring an industry there whatever that is, a brewery, a distillery, a, you know, some kind of manufacturing, like leatherworks, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. 
Like it could be huge, yeah. and it would be really supported and embraced by the community. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's the same kind of thing with this because we're talking about similar sized communities here. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple thousand people. So I mean, it makes you wonder. Like we think about big cities being corrupt, but there's I think a lot more opportunity to expose that corruption. But when you're a small, tight knit community, it becomes really probably really apparent what's going on and easier to get other people involved on board, you know. Mm-hmm. There aren't that many squeaky wheels to be greased. Yeah. And it can happen. I think another thing that people don't realize is how much power a sheriff has. A sheriff is a lot different than like a chief of police. If the sheriff is in charge of the case and say Arkansas Bureau of Investigation wants to get involved, he just says, no. Say the FBI wants to get involved and they don't have proof of a federal violation, he just says, nah, don't need you. That's a lot of power, dude. When you have the power to call off the dogs that would be, you know, nipping at your heels about your corruptness, that's a lot of power. Yeah. And then he just controls everything in the uh, prosecuting attorney. I mean, it, it it's perfect. And it worked. I don't know if it's still going on. I, I would hope not. I would hope that the uh, investigations into the Clintons and you know, Bushes had shut this operation down. But it may not be in Mina, but it's somewhere, right? Yeah. You know, it's just like they say it's 5 o'clock somewhere. There's 50 pounds of cocaine getting dropped somewhere, too. So... <laughs> <sighs> All right. Well, I guess that's all we've got for you tonight. You want to wrap it up with a quick what they need to know? Sure. We'd appreciate it if you guys would give us a rating or some kind of comment on your podcast platform. Email us. Let us know what you think and what you want to hear next at crypticpodcast.gmail.com. Check out what we're selling at crypticpodcaststore.com. Find us on YouTube and TikTok. I'm pretty sure you can figure out what to search. Check out Parabox in the link in the show notes. And we will see you guys next time. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. 